Happy Nurses Week to all the nurses and future nurses listening. To celebrate, I'm having a 20% off sale on Study Sesh. This is my private podcast that features over 140 episodes to help you study on the go. Formats include pod quizzes, power hour deep dives, drills, and case studies. If you're tired of sitting at your desk or staring at a screen, but still want to review for nursing school, it's time to check out Study Sesh. Go to straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in that top menu bar. That's straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in the menu bar. See you there. Well, hello and welcome to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and on this podcast, I teach nursing concepts and share tips to help nurses and nursing students thrive in school and at the bedside. So before we dive into today's topic, which is a pediatric topic, I want to take a quick minute for a listener shout out. And this one goes out to Aaron, who says, most helpful way of breaking down pathophysiology is incredible. But the real value of this podcast for me is her gentle, consistent reassurance. It's a tough gig being a nursing student. This podcast has so many tips and tricks. If you're having a moment of doubt and need a clear and calm voice, there's probably an episode that will really help. Happy to say I am now a qualified RN, but still keep coming back for more. Well, congratulations, Erin, on graduating and passing your NCLEX, and now you have those amazing letters after your name. I'm so, so proud of you, and I'm thrilled that the podcast helped you. So let's dive into the topic today, which, as I mentioned, is a pediatric topic, though, of course, this condition can affect adults, but it's just more common in children. And if you're a nursing student, you're more likely to learn about it in your pediatric class. And that is pertussis. So pertussis, which you may also hear simply called whooping cough, is a respiratory tract infection caused by the bacteria Bordadella pertussis. It is highly contagious and it predominantly, again, impacts children. Pertussis is spread via droplets. So, droplets in the air when an infected individual breathes or coughs. Now, because cases of pertussis increase approximately every three to four years, it is considered a cyclical disease. So there'll be periods where cases go up about every three to four years. The infection itself consists of four key stages that typically occur over a period of six to 10 weeks, though, of course, this can vary. So let's dive into those four key stages. So first is the colonization stage, and it lasts about one week. In this stage, bacteria attach to the cilia and begin replication. So during this stage, the individual probably doesn't have any symptoms, but is still able to spread the disease, making this one of the key ways that pertussis is spread. And then in that second stage, which is called the catarrhal stage, now this lasts about one to two weeks, and during this stage of infection, the bacteria proliferate, and this results in 
excess mucus production and inflammation. The individual begins at this stage to have the symptoms. And the symptoms are basically kind of nonspecific and more or less resemble a common cold. And that's things like a runny nose, maybe a mild cough, some congestion, and a low-grade fever. Next is the paroxysmal stage. And this one lasts a while. It can last two to three months in some cases. And this stage is characterized by that distinctive cough that occurs in pertussis. These coughing spells or paroxysms can last for over a minute and be very, very severe. And they have these gasps of air in between coughs when the individual is trying really hard to just get some air in. And what this does is it creates an inspiratory gasp with a distinctive whooping sound, which is why we have the name whooping cough. Do note, though, however, that this is not likely to actually occur in infants. It's going to be more in children and in adults. Now, these coughing spells can be so, so severe that they lead to vomiting, exhaustion, and can even lead to dehydration. Note that the dehydration is likely to occur either to fluid losses from vomiting or simply from decreased PO intake while they're having these horrible coughing fits. And then we have the final stage, which is the convalescent stage, and this can last weeks up to months. And this stage is marked by a decrease in coughing and severity, frequency of the coughing. And then over time, as the cough improves, of course, the individual starts to feel better. Note that the transmission of pertussis occurs, again, during that colonization stage, like I mentioned before they have symptoms, and then it's going to be in that catarrhal stage through the first two to three weeks of the paroxysmal stage. So a pretty long period of time where the individual is infectious, and that would be without treatment, okay? And we'll talk about treatment in just a little bit. Let's talk First, though, about the pertussis vaccine. So prior to the development of a vaccine, pertussis was considered a normal illness that many people got, even though it could cause serious illness and even death. The first pertussis vaccine was developed in the 1930s, and then by the 1940s, mid-1940s, it was pretty widely used in the United States. And then cases of pertussis dropped from about 200,000 a year to a low of around 1,000 cases per year in the mid-1970s. Unfortunately, pertussis cases have increased since the 1980s, and outbreaks of the disease have even reached epidemic levels in some states. For example, in 2019, more than 15,000 cases and nine deaths were reported to the CDC. So we went from 1,000 cases in the mid-70s to 15,000 in 2019. So definitely taking some steps back. So currently, the pertussis vaccine is combined with vaccines for diphtheria and tetanus in what is commonly referred to as the DTaP vaccine. And this vaccine is intended for children under the age of seven. Older children and adults will get a similar vaccine called the TDAP, which simply has smaller amounts of vaccine against diphtheria and whooping cough and more in that tetanus category. 
So the vaccine for pertussis is an acellular vaccine, meaning the viral cells in that vaccine are dead. Now, a key advantage of this type of vaccine is that there's fewer side effects without compromising on strength of immunity. Note that the pertussis vaccine does not provide lifelong immunity against the disease, but is more instead intended to protect children during their most vulnerable years. So in addition to children, the vaccine is also administered to pregnant women to help protect the child from pertussis during infancy since that first vaccine dose is not administered until two months of age. So they get their first dose at two months and then they get four additional doses. So that one would be at four months, then again at six months, then another between 15 and 18 months, and a final dose between four and six years. And if a vaccinated individual does contract pertussis, the evidence shows that the disease stages are shorter, especially in those who have completed that full course of the vaccine schedule. So who is most at risk for pertussis? We're looking here at Infants that are going to be at the highest risk, and then partially vaccinated and unvaccinated children would be next, and then unvaccinated teens and adults. Of course, also individuals with underlying respiratory conditions such as asthma or cystic fibrosis. Additionally, females are affected more than males. So what are some complications of pertussis? So when we look at the complications, infants tend to have the most severe complications and the most severe illness. The most common childhood complication is bacterial pneumonia, and that can become very, very severe. Other rare but serious complications include seizures, cerebral edema and inflammation, and even death. Now, the complications in adults tend to be kind of more widespread and include things like hearing loss, scleral hemorrhage, urinary incontinence, inguinal hernia, even cracked ribs, and pneumonia. And then serious complications in adults include pneumothorax and carotid artery dissection. Anyone with a respiratory disorder is more likely to have serious complications overall, especially those with cystic fibrosis. So now that you have a baseline understanding of pertussis, let's go through the nursing implications using the straight A nursing latte method. So L is for look. How does the patient look? So the initial symptoms arise approximately 7 to 10 days after infection and include a runny nose, nasal congestion, maybe some red and watery eyes, and a fever. They may also have a mild cough, but note that this cough is not yet that characteristic whooping cough that is associated with the disease. Basically, it just kind of looks like they have a common cold. And then as the condition progresses, symptoms become more severe and include those prolonged coughing attacks with that characteristic whooping sound as they gasp for air. Additional symptoms would be fatigue. They could even have a red or bluish tint to the face due to decreased oxygen during the attacks. And infants may not cough at all, but may instead have periods of apnea. So that's essentially what a patient might look like with pertussis. 
And then the next letter in the latte method is an A, and that is for assess. How are we going to assess our patient? So the key assessments you will conduct for a patient with pertussis are definitely centered around their respiratory status. So observe the patient for any signs of respiratory distress. Signs of severe respiratory distress in small children include things like nasal flaring, grunting, and use of accessory muscles. A child who is displaying symptoms like this needs immediate, swift intervention. I've got an episode about pediatric respiratory distress if you're interested in diving into that a little bit. And that is episode 140. So definitely go and listen to that. You'll also be auscultating lungs to observe for adventitious lung sounds, which can occur with pneumonia, which is a common complication, and to observe for diminished airflow, which can occur with pneumothorax and even airway occlusion. So speaking of airway occlusion, assess your patient's airway patency since the inflammation and the mucus associated with pertussis could lead to partial or complete airway occlusion. You'll be measuring oxygen saturation levels and counting respirations. And if available, utilize in-tidal CO2 monitoring to catch oxygenation issues well before they show on pulse oximetry. Other important assessments include monitoring for fever, decreased oral intake, and dehydration. The next letter in the latte method is a T, and that stands for tests. What tests will be conducted for this patient? So the gold standard test is a culture, but it can take longer than other diagnostic tests. So instead, you may see serology and PCR, and PCR can be done a lot quicker than a culture. One challenge with pertussis testing is obtaining that sample via a nasopharyngeal swab. You can imagine that that might be difficult to do in infants and children. Other tests include a white blood cell count that's going to show an infection when that white blood cell count is elevated. A chest x-ray may be conducted to assess for complications such as pneumonia or even pneumothorax in severe cases. Or let's say someone cracked some ribs from coughing so hard, a chest x-ray would be useful there. And then pulmonary function tests could be done to determine the effect that pertussis has had on lung function. And then next, we have another T in the latte method, and that is for treatments. What treatments are utilized to treat pertussis? The studies show that antibiotics are going to be most effective when given in the early stages of the disease and may have no effect if started in later stages. Not only do they shorten the duration of illness, but can reduce the risk of transmission. In most cases, the patient will not transmit the disease after about five full days of appropriate antibiotic treatment. Some commonly used antibiotics are azithromycin and erythromycin. And then looking at that cough, you know, you might think, well, cough medication would help. Unfortunately, traditional cough medications do not lessen the frequency or the severity of the cough associated with pertussis. So we don't actually recommend that patients or parents utilize these. 
And then additionally, studies have shown that the use of corticosteroids, bronchodilators, and antihistamines, which have been looked at in the past for treating this cough and pertussis, have not actually proven to be beneficial. You may still see them used, and you may especially still see inhaled beta agonists used in children with respiratory compromise. But know that the studies show that they may not be that helpful, but there is some anecdotal evidence out there that it could be in some cases, which is why you might see those still used. Other treatments include ensuring adequate hydration and nutrition as children experiencing these really intense coughing fits will have increased fluid and calorie requirements, and then especially a risk for decreased hydration if they're vomiting and losing fluids in that way. In some cases, they'll need IV hydration and even enteral feeding. You want to take measures to prevent coughing as much as you can, such as decreasing stimulation and providing cool mist humidification in the room. Critically ill infants and children will require advanced interventions that will, of course, vary based on their specific complications, but can include anti-seizure medications if they're having seizures. It can include mechanical ventilation. Some studies have shown exchange transfusion may be helpful, and this involves removing the patient's blood and replacing it with donor blood. And then when exchange transfusion isn't effective, they may even get ECMO. If you're interested in learning about ECMO, I'll put a link in the episode notes that will take you to an article on my website with some more information. And then during a coughing spell, encourage the patient to sit upright as this can help facilitate breathing. So the next letter in the latte method is an E, and this is for education. How do you educate the patient and the family? So education regarding the care of infants with pertussis includes things like keeping the child in a dark and quiet room in order to decrease stimulation and help prevent severe coughing fits. You want to focus on feeding the child small, frequent feedings to increase nutritional intake. You should monitor for signs of dehydration. Make sure the parents know how to do that. This includes sunken eyes, sunken fontanelle, lack of tears when crying, of course, a reduced number of wet diapers, and then also lethargy. Again, advising parents that cough medications and expectorants are not advised, and you want to make sure they know the signs of respiratory distress that they could see. Again, that's things like nasal flaring, grunting, and the use of accessory muscles. Now, some general education includes things like proper hand hygiene is a really essential and important way to stop the spread of disease, and that if antibiotics are prescribed, and hopefully they are, if they catch it early enough, they will be, individuals need to stay isolated for five days after taking a full five days of antibiotics, and that if no antibiotics have been prescribed, they are infectious for about three weeks. They should be advised to take the full course of antibiotics even after they start to feel better. You also want to convey the importance of receiving vaccines for those who are around vulnerable populations, specifically those with close contact with infants. 
Teach that sitting upright helps make breathing easier during a coughing fit and that they can use a cool mist humidifier, which can help ease the coughing. And definitely, this does not mean using steam. Do not use steam. Use cool mist. You can teach that they should avoid irritating substances such as smoke, which can make coughing worse, and to know when to seek immediate emergency treatment, things like the face turning blue or reddish, passing out after coughing or from coughing, stopping breathing at any time, or if the individual seems more fatigued than usual and is sleeping way more than usual. Those could be some signs to seek emergency medical treatment. So I hope you found this review of pertussis helpful. And before we close out, I do want to share a special little treat with you. And what I have is an excerpt from a book written by David Mesger. He is a pediatric nurse and in his book, Nurse Papa, which you can find on Amazon, just look for Nurse Papa. And in his book, he's got some thoughtful meditations on connecting the world of parenting your young, healthy kids with this reality that he faces with nursing sick children. So if you're a parent or you have any interest in pediatric nursing, I think you'll find this book really insightful and just really meaningful. So David was kind enough to share an excerpt from his book, and I will add that here for you next. Again, if this speaks to you, you can get his book on Amazon. It is available in Kindle format and in paperback format. So let's listen to David reading to us from his book. Chapter One, That Kid Look. The long hallway of this hospital unit follows an elongated horseshoe pattern with all of the patient's rooms oriented on the outside. These rooms have large windows and a striking view of the San Francisco Bay. When the light of the sun is allowed to pour in, the rooms feel airy and open. When the drapes are drawn shut and the overhead lights turn off, though, each room can be as cool and dark as the cave of a snoozing bear. Some patients prefer their space dim and silent as they sleep their way through indeterminate stays. Sleep can be preferable to the other states available to them. Nausea, pain, boredom, or all three simultaneously. But there are other patients who seek the stimulus of the world on the other side of the glass. They spend their days sitting on the ledge beneath the large bay windows, their noses and hands pressed against it, smudgy marks left behind. They play with their parents and siblings, scribble at homework that not even cancer can help them escape from, or watch movies on the big screen television that seems almost as large as a studio apartment I once lived in. Outside these patient rooms, nurses in royal blue scrubs, doctors in their street clothes with stethoscopes hanging around their necks, and various other hospital staff in green, gray, and light blue uniforms roam up and down the halls. The drum of their conversations, the beeping of monitors, and the occasional blare of overhead announcements ensure a steady white noise that most who work here hardly notice anymore. Visitors unfamiliar with the long layout 
often find themselves fully circumnavigating the entire horseshoe shape before they find the exit, which is also the entrance. Of the long line of identical doors faced evenly along the hallway of this pediatric oncology ward, most were shut. The sounds of sick kids and their families distilled indecipherably out into the hallway. The room I was standing near was silent, though. The inhabitants within saddened and struck mute. The girl inside, who once laughed, cried, endured, and grew bored in this room and others just like it, died early in the morning. Her name was Lucia. I remember her cute, chubby face and the tight curls of her brown hair, before it all fell out. She once wore the same flowery red dress for days in a row, despite her mom's ardent protests. Her large family sat around the bed where her body lay, sometimes speaking in hushed tones, but mostly just sitting. She was wearing that same red dress. It had thin shoulder straps. The small patterned flowers were blue and yellow. Veronica, Lucia's younger sister, could not be easily contained to a silent room. A shorter and plumper doppelganger of Lucia, she was happily playing with a small inflatable ball just outside the door, bouncing it against a wall and singing softly to herself. I first met Lucia a year or so before she died. I was a new nurse then, still walking those hallways in confused circles myself. She was a newly diagnosed cancer patient, leukemia. The first night I took care of her, I was working with a nurse who was training me. Lucia was sick and feverish, shivering in her bed. We had to wake her shortly after midnight to draw blood from her already bruised body to determine how we would treat her. Her sleepy eyes were wide and fearful of the advancing needle that I held. My hand was shaking with nervousness, while her hand, my tiny target, was strangely still. If they were interested, the bookies in Vegas would have offered equal odds over who was more scared in that moment. Me, or the prepubescent girl from whose body I was about to draw blood. Rivlets of sweat dripped from my brow as I pushed the needle into her skin, and connected to her vein. Still standing outside the door where Lucia's body lay, I was shaken from this memory by the phone buzzing in my pocket. When I answered it, I heard the muffled request of a mother asking for medication for her vomiting son. As I walked quickly to help them, I made sure to end the call from the boys' room. I once forgot to do this before placing my phone back into the front pocket of my scrubs, and the young girl and her mother were treated to the unmistakable sounds of a grown man using the restroom. I passed by an open door. Inside was a bored teenage girl. She was lying in bed and watching TV. Her skin was pale. Her smooth head was covered by a beanie that her mom had knitted at her bedside. A catheter exited at the point on the right of her chest and connected to a tangle of clear plastic tubes that led to a humming medication pump next to her bed. A tray of untouched food sat ignored in front of her. She waved and smiled as they passed by. The next door over was closed. I could hear a loud yell from the child within, but it was not clear to me if it was a laugh or a cry. Here, where the expression of every possible human emotion is not only accepted, but expected, it can sometimes be difficult to distinguish between the two. Just before I entered the room to which I had been summoned, 
I could hear the boy retching and coughing inside. <coughs> I noticed Veronica, Lucia's look-alike sister next to me. She had migrated down the hall while I was lost in the memory of her older sibling. She was still playfully distracted in her own little world. Veronica was quite used to this place by now, a veritable sibling appendage. The bouncing ball had escaped from her grasp, and she was chasing after it, away from the hospital room where her sister's body, still in that red dress, lay. As she skipped down the hallway, her arms stretched out in front of her, she sang loudly enough for me to hear her words. The tune was some variation of a common nursery rhyme, but the words were all her own. My sister's an angel, my sister's an angel, my sister's an angel, my sister's an angel. <laughs> she sang between giggles. Clearly, one of her family members had tried to explain Lucia's death in a way that a young child might understand. Her refrain reminded me of a scratch record, upon which the needle was not merely stuck, but almost willing itself into action. The ball she had been chasing came to rest against the side of the hallway. Pausing in her song, Veronica stared at me with a blank kid expression that seemed to convey neither trust nor suspicion, but rather some emotion in between. It puzzled me at the time. Now, years later, with over a decade of pediatric nursing and six years of child-rearing under my belt, it is a look I have come to know all too well. It is the same faraway glance that my precocious six-year-old daughter routinely drops on me when she possesses neither the words, desire, nor patience to tell me what is really on her mind. I wanted to say something meaningful to this girl with a newly dead sister, something that would explain why this was all happening but I had no good explanation for it. Only useless platitudes came to my mind. Ignoring me fully, she began her refrain again. This time, it was only a hum, but her words stayed with me. My sister's an angel. My sister's an angel. My sister's an angel. My sister's an angel. Then, for no apparent reason, the skipping record in Veronica's mind stopped. She picked up her ball and headed back in the direction from which she had come. Wow. So thank you to David for sharing that beautiful excerpt. And again, if you're interested in his book, check out Nurse Papa on Amazon. And I hope to see you back here next week for another episode of the Straight A Nursing Podcast. We'll be diving into gout, a very common condition that you will see in your patients. And if you're a student, you will see this on exams. So I'll see you back here next week for that. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. <laughs>